Thank you, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you are not there already, we will be in Psalm 51. We've got a lot to cover today in a longer psalm here, but we'll be in Psalm 51 in our series here on the Psalms. Now, while you're turning there, I want to start with a little illustration. So, before I got married, I thought that I was a catch. I thought to myself, how lucky will be the girl who marries Zach Lee? And then I got married and I realized I'm kind of a dirtbag, right? Like I am the worst. I'm selfish, I'm emotionally distant, I'm proud, and all all these thoughts that I have of what a great husband I would be were instantly dashed within like 30 minutes of getting married or something. And so one of the things you have to quickly learn in marriage is that there must be repentance, Though you're already in a relationship with the person, it's not as though you become divorced or you cease to be married just because there's some type of conflict. Although you're already married to the person, there are many times that you will have to repent, okay? And so uh, I spent the first several years of my marriage thinking my spouse was the problem and then the last several years realizing I was the problem. By the way, that's true in your marriage as well. The problem is not your spouse, it's you. And so one day I came in and my wife was looking like she was kind of sad. She was laying on the couch And she looked both frowny, and that she had a frown, and she looked grumpy. And I said, what's wrong, babe? You look a little frumpy. Not the right thing to say. Now, little did I know that frumpy doesn't mean frowny and grumpy. I should have said that she looked grounny, but I missed it, okay? Frumpy means like unattractive and homely. Not what I meant at all. But regardless of what I meant, guess what I had to practice? Repentance. I said, Lord Katie, I have sinned against thee. And in thy grace, would you wash me clean? Would you make me white as snow? Though we were already in a relationship, though nothing really happened in the relationship, there was still this need for reconciliation. There was still this need for repentance. That's what we're gonna see in this psalm today. This is what is called a penitential psalm. So as we're preaching in this series through the psalms, we're not gonna go over all 150 of them. That would take us 1,000 years. Rather, what we've done is we've tried to select different types of psalms so that you can learn to read the book of psalms on your own. So we've seen a royal, a messianic psalm, for example, in Psalm 2, Tim taught on a psalm uh, regarding suffering, Jared talked about last week kind of the psalm of meditation, well today we're getting a brand new type of psalm, and it is what is called a penitential psalm. So here's why this is important. You don't just worship God when you're doing well spiritually, this is a psalm that's going to teach you how to worship God when you've blown it when you have absolutely messed up, when you have sinned and sinned big. You see, we have a tendency to think when we sin, we don't come to church or we can't pray or we can't read our Bible because we need to clean ourselves up first. This psalm is going to destroy that idea that there is a way to worship even when you have sinned big and it is a way that God accepts. That's what we're gonna look at today. So let me pray for us and then we will get into the text. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We thank you that your uh, psalms are varied that we don't just put on a happy face to worship you, but there's a way to worship you in sadness, and there's a way to worship you in suffering, and there's a way to worship you even when we have sinned and sinned big. And so I pray that you would be with us as we look at this text. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen. All right, first of all, let's look at the title. Remember, your English title put there by your translator is not inspired, but the Hebrew title is actually there in the Hebrew text, and so conservative uh, Christianity regards that as being part of God's word as well. So we're gonna start there with the title. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, 
when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this psalm is actually going to give us more than a lot of other psalms. It's going to tell us not only who it's written to, it's going to tell us who it's written by, and it's going to give us the occasion for which the psalm was written. So if you don't know this story, we have to catch up real quick, okay? Back in the Old Testament, you have King David. He's a man after God's own heart, and he is like the uh, prototypical king. He's the king that all kings should strive to be like, okay? But one day, he's up on his palace, and he sees a woman, let's just say, taking a Bathsheba, okay? So he sees this naked woman bathing, which can be distracting, but instead of averting his eyes and doing what the Bible would tell him to do, instead he says, I must have her. Now, at this point, David is married, and this woman, Bathsheba, she's married to a guy named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, okay? But it doesn't matter, and David, let's just say with kids in the room, knows her in the biblical sense. Wink, okay? So, there is this, uh, he sleeps with, uh, with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant, and David wants to try to hide his sin. So, he calls Uriah back from the field. Uriah is one of David's soldiers, Okay? He calls Uriah back from the field and he says, why don't you spend the night with your wife? He's trying to uh, convince Uriah that it's actually Uriah's baby, even though it is David's baby. Okay? But Uriah will not lay with his wife, he says, because his brothers are dying in the battlefield. He's not going to partake of the pleasures of his home while his brothers are bleeding and dying. And so he doesn't sleep with his wife. So now David realizes his sin is going to be found out. But instead of repenting there... King David has Uriah oft. He's like a mob boss ordering a hit. This is not just a normal death in battle. King David has Uriah moved to the front lines so that he will die. So within the span of a very short time, King David has not only committed adultery, but he has committed murder. And so this prophet named Nathan comes to David and confronts him in his sin, and King David repents. He realizes the evil that he has done and he repents and we get this psalm. One of the things you need to see about David is though David sins big, he repents big. Though David is a big sinner, David has an even bigger savior. And so you're gonna see David doesn't pull any punches when he's confessing his sin. We will see that in the text. Now, before we get into verse one, I want you to see that Psalm 51 will actually teach us how to repent. Do you know how to repent biblically? Because Psalm 51 is going to teach us. It's going to walk us through five steps. So I want to show you a little chart that looks like, uh, there you go. Verses one through two is grace. That's where it starts, that you are already loved by God. Verses three through six, you're going to see David's confession, the, the fact that we are hopelessly depraved. We sin because we are sinners. Verses seven through 12, that's the third step, forgiveness, that you're fully forgiven and clean. Then that leads to worship. Once God has forgiven you, you see the fourth step as worship, verses 13 through 17, that forgiveness brings thanks, discipleship, and evangelism. And then verses 18 through 19, you will see final restoration, this hope that one day God will fix everything, not just your sin, but he will fix the whole world. So that's what we're gonna see as we dive into this text, all right? Verse one, he says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice that he begins with an appeal to God's grace by saying, have mercy on me, O God. Let me say it this way. How do you begin your prayers? When you pray to God, how do you begin your prayers? Do you begin just telling God what you want? Do you begin thanking God for what he's done? Do you even begin with repentance? Because none of those are what David begins with. David begins with God's grace. 
He begins not by saying anything about himself, but by saying something about God. Jesus does the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. Before we're to pray for forgiveness and we're to pray for our daily bread, the very first thing we say is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Meaning, before I do anything about me, I need to realize God. This is a very God-centered prayer. David's prayer, before he even confesses his sin, begins with God's grace. That's where it starts. He starts by realizing I'm already in relationship with God. God is still my friend, though I have sinned big time. That is huge. That is how you should start your prayers. That's how you should start your day, by telling yourself, I am accepted. That's where it starts. We don't work for God's acceptance. We work from God's acceptance. I mentioned this a few weeks ago that in my home, as we're teaching our kids biblical principles and such, one of the things that we will do is we will tell, I will tell them, daddy loves you all the time. And I'll ask them the questions to make sure they get it. I'll say, does daddy love you when you're happy? Yes. Does daddy love you when you're sad? Yes. Does daddy love you when you disobey? And sometimes they say, no. And I'm like, nope, that's not correct. Daddy loves you even when you disobey. Does daddy love you when you have to be disciplined? Yes. Does daddy love you even when you don't love daddy? Yes, daddy loves me all the time. That's a mantra that we use. So I'll tell my daughter, Isla, I say, Isla, I love you. And she says, I love you. Daddy loves me all the time. And we're like, that's exactly right. I'm trying to teach her something biblically that God loves us all the time. Even when we disobey, even when we have to be disciplined, even when we don't love God. If your kid ever says to you something really mean, like, I don't love you or I hate you, here's what you do. You look them in the eye and you say, that's okay. I still love you. Your love for me is not dependent on my love for you. David's prayer begins with an appeal to God's grace. That's where it starts. Notice the type of language he uses in describing this merciful God. You see this language of love, mercy, transgressions, iniquity, sin, etc. The reason David uses those is because that's how God has revealed himself. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By the way, in this Psalm, iniquity, transgression and sin are all the same thing. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it'll divide those out. That's not what David's doing. He's just dealing with sin overall. But what David does in his prayer before he confesses, before he does anything is he stops and he says, this is a merciful God and I'm already in relationship with this merciful God. That is where you have to start when it comes to repentance, okay? Second thing I want you to see. Notice that he appeals to God's goodness and not his own. Look at this phrase. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. His hope is not on anything that's in him. It's not forgive me because I'm really sorry. It's not forgive me because I won't do it again. It's not forgive me because I'm a king and I'm a great guy. He appeals to something in God, not something in himself, okay? You are not forgiven or saved because of your ability to believe hard enough. You are not forgiven or saved because your ability to repent hard enough. This is something that drove the German reformer, Martin Luther, crazy, is that he would go into confessional. Remember, before you have Protestantism, you only have Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy. He would go into confession, and he would confess his sins to a priest, and he would name everything that he had done wrong and immediately step out of that confessional and think to himself, did I really mean that? Was I really sorry enough? Surely I could be sorrier than I was. I've offended a holy God. If I was really a Christian, if I was really sorry, why do I keep committing the same sins? And he'd have to go back to confessional and the priests would tell him, go away. Come back when you have something real to confess. 
Because one of the things that Luther realized is if our repentance or if our salvation is up to us repenting hard enough, we can never do it. You cannot have perfect faith. You cannot have perfect repentance. God doesn't save you based on the strength of your repentance. He saves you based on the strength of him. Some of you, when you repent, you do this form of emotional penance. What you do is you repent, and instead of realizing that God has forgiven you and that everything is cool, you wallow in guilt. You beat yourself up emotionally trying to show God how sorry you are. And when you do that, you are trying to atone for your own sins instead of trusting in Christ. Notice King David does not do that. King David just appeals to God's mercy. That is huge. For everyone who's walking around with all this sin you've already been forgiven for. As Luther would say that it is the job not of God but of the devil to bring up forgiven sin, okay? That when you are forgiven, you move on. You are clean and you move forward. Third thing I want you to see before we go on to the next verses. Notice that only God can cleanse us of our sin. It says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. All humans realize that we've rebelled against God. That's according to Romans 1. Even the atheist, there are no real atheists biblically. The atheist suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, but they can't get away from it because they're created by God, and so God's law is written on their heart. So all of us have a sense of guilt. We all have a bit of a guilty conscience, okay? And we want, there's this longing in the human heart to be clean. And this text tells us how we can find it. You don't find cleansing in baptism. You don't find cleansing in church attendance. You don't find cleansing in trying to clean yourself up. You don't find cleansing in trying to do better next time. You don't find cleansing in partaking of communion. You don't find cleansing in trying to be a good person. The place you find cleansing is in Christ or you don't find it at all. It is just based upon God's mercy. You're the one who messed it up. God will do the cleaning and he doesn't need your help. It's like if you've ever had a baby and you change the diaper. If the baby tries to help, it makes it way worse and grosser. You will do that. The baby made the mess. It's your job to do the cleaning. So we see grace. We see that David's prayer begins with God. Let's look at the next step, verses three through six. Here we're gonna see confession. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Look at verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. King David does not excuse his sin. He does not minimize it. He just confesses it. He confesses, but he talks about how awful he is. You see, if you grew up in church, church was the last place where you could be honest about your sin right? It was the place where you would dress nice and try to act like you had it all together and say, glory, brother, and a bunch of weird Christian phrases that you don't use anywhere else. That's what church was. But inside, we were all dying because we're actually struggling with sin. That's not what King David does. You see, the greater you think Christ is, the more you don't have to be great. The greater, cleaner you think that Jesus is, you're free to realize how awful you and I really are. You see, this type of repentance brings humility. King David, the greatest man in Israel, has to say, I'm not great. I'll give you a little illustration. A couple weeks ago, or last week, I was going for a little jog, right? Getting those COVID-resistant lungs. So I was going for a little run in my neighborhood, and I was feeling awesome. It was like two in the afternoon. It's hot in Texas in the summer, and I've got my heavy metal music going. 
and I've got on my cool running shades and I'm out there just crushing it. And I'm thinking to myself, I'll never die. I'll never die, I'm crushing it. So as I'm running, I'm going for my run and I look down and hanging from a web, there is a huge black spider, okay? Probably not this big. There's a, there's a big, well, it's probably, there's a big black spider, okay? Maybe a little less than an inch, enormous, okay? And it's hanging down from a web and I'm running and so I decide I'm just gonna kind of straddle jump over it. So there's a spider hanging and I just kind of go like this to kind of run over it and straddle it. Now here's the problem with that. The spider was not levitating. It didn't just have magic spider floaty powers, but rather it was hanging from a web. So as soon as I straddle that, I now have a spider hanging between my legs as I'm trying to run, okay? And so I then try to hit the spider and here's what I do. I twist, I fall backwards. My shoe comes off, my back hits the ground and my sunglasses come off. And as cars are driving by laughing, I think to myself, I'm not great. I'm not God, okay? That's what repentance is. Repentance is this acknowledgement that no matter how powerful and great David thinks that he is before a holy God, he's nothing. He's nothing. Look at verse four. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, what does that mean? Surely David sinned against, oh, I don't know, Bathsheba. Surely David sinned against, I don't know, maybe Uriah, the guy whose wife he took and had him murder. Surely David sinned against his own wife. Surely David sinned against the people of Israel. It seems like David sinned against a bunch of people. How on earth can he say that he's only sinned against God? Here's what he means by this phrase, okay? Here's what he means by this phrase. All sin is ultimately directed against God, okay? We hurt others, but really we sin against God. If you cheat on your spouse, who is the most offended party in that? It's not your spouse. It's God. All sin is ultimately directed against God. That's what David realizes. So yes, in a sense, we sin against others in the fact that we wrong them, but because sin has to do with breaking God's laws and God is the only ultimate lawgiver, that's how David can say that he has sinned against God alone. Look at the second part of verse four. He says this, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does that mean? David is saying that it is right when God judges sinners. There's this huge objection to Christianity that goes something like this. How can a loving God send people to hell forever, okay? That's a big objection to Christianity. Here's the answer. Because God's never sent someone to hell that's not a sinner. God is just in what he does in punishing sinners. God is just in what he does in disciplining his children when we are walking in sin. And King David simply acknowledges that though I've wronged God, he has not actually wronged me. Though God disciplined David, do you know in the story how God disciplines David? He kills his kid. God kills David's kid as discipline. That's not God being mad or having wrath towards the child. The Bible's clear that God does not punish, sins for the, uh, punish children for the sins of their fathers. That's God punishing David in a disciplinary way and it affects others, okay? Now let me say this. If you have lost a child, I am not saying that that is God disciplining you, okay? Don't take this text in a weird direction. What I am saying is that God is serious about sin and your sin affects more people than just you. God is serious about sin and your sin affects more people than just you. Verse five, David says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. A few comments before I explain that. First of all, notice that the Bible sees a fetus as a baby. 
that little baby in the womb is a person, a person even who can sin against God. So just as a little, a little political aside, keep that in mind. Also notice that this is not David talking about his mom's sin. When he says, in sin did my mother conceive me, that doesn't mean his mom was a floozy and somehow that's how he got, he's talking about his own sin. He's not talking about his mom's sin. Here's what David is saying. The reason that I committed these sins is because I am by nature a sinner. This is the doctrine of total depravity. You are not born good. You are not born neutral. That's Pelagianism, okay? You are born positively sinful because you and I are in the line of Adam. That's how we are born, from the womb, at conception. As soon as conception happens, there's a little sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And here's what David is saying. How could I commit adultery and murder? Because that's the kind of guy I am. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. That's why. That's huge. Listen to me. When we sin, we like to think we are good people who committed this bad act. You are a bad person. I am a bad person apart from Christ. That's not how God sees me. In Christ, I'm not a bad person. In Christ, I'm perfect. But in my flesh, apart from Christ, you and I are not good people who just make mistakes. We are bad people, okay? There is a a documentary I would highly encourage you to watch. There's some language. So there's my pastoral warning for those of you with young kids. But it's awesome. It's on Netflix. If you don't have Netflix, what's wrong with you? It's 2020 and COVID. That's the only thing to do. Get your Netflix. Now, the documentary is called The Push, okay? The Push, and it is excellent. There is a guy who does psychological techniques. His name's Darren Brown. And through social pressure and psychology, he convinces people to commit murder. It's excellent. They have a guy sitting up on a building and he has a harness, but you can't see the harness. And he convinces people through social pressure to push the guy off. And three out of the four people he does it on do it. They're crying as they push him off, okay? That is what's in the heart of man. Apart from God's common grace, we are all Hitler and we all push, okay? David is saying, this is the kind of person I am. You are not good. You don't have to minimize how bad you are. In fact, I would encourage you to relish in how awful you are. Accept how awful you are and me. I'm not saying you and not me, especially me, because I know me. I don't know what goes on in your head, but I know what goes on in my head and it's not good. Okay, But notice, David is saying, the reason I did this is because this is the kind of person I am. This is the kind of person I am. Look at verse six. It says this. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here's what he's saying here, two things. First of all, God is not just about the external action. In the Gospels, Jesus will say that if you look at a woman that you're not married to, is the idea, with lust, that you've committed adultery in your heart, And if you are angry with somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. By the way, notice those are both of the sins that David is dealing with. And the point of Jesus saying that is not to say that if you've had a lustful thought, you can divorce your spouse, nor is it to say that you should physically lock someone in prison who's been angry. The point Jesus is making is God is after a transformed heart. If you want to commit adultery, but you don't, there's still something wrong there. If you want to hurt somebody but you don't, there's still something wrong there, okay? So first he's saying that God wants the truth in the inner heart. The second thing he's saying is that it is God that must give that new heart. It is God that must give that regeneration. It is God that must teach us his wisdom in the secret. It's God that must, though we are born evil with evil hearts, God must give us truth in the gospel through regeneration that we might have new hearts, So there we've seen grace, we've seen confession. Look at verses seven through 12. 
Now we're gonna see forgiveness and cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the first thing I want you to see in verse seven. Let me read this and then I need to say this strongly. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If you are a Christian, you are clean. You are forgiven, okay? Completely. Not, I realize I'm a Christian, but I also think of myself as being really awful. Or not, I know that I'm a Christian, but there's an asterisk next to my name. And if you look at the bottom of the salvation contract, it says something like, though this person's a Christian because God has to be faithful, really, 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 they're awful, okay? Listen, he who the Son has set free is free indeed, amen? There are no dirty Christians because there's not a dirty Christ. In God's eyes, you are perfect and holy and spotless. In your flesh, apart from Christ, you're a bad person. In Christ, which is the most real thing about you, the way that God sees you, you are spotless, you are clean, you are perfect, you are forgiven. It's done, you can rest. God delights in you. That's what verse seven is going to say. I get a chance to minister to a lot of guys who are in the military or in law enforcement. And I love those guys, those are my kind of guys, okay? And I've had to have conversations with several of them who've had to take life, whether it's in battle or maybe in law enforcement, they've had to take someone's life. And so I've had to have a lot of conversations with them. And I have found that many of these guys carry a false sense of guilt. Guys who are Christians carry a huge false sense of guilt. So when I'm talking to somebody who is in the military or in law enforcement who's had to take human life, the first thing I say is, tell me the events of the shooting to go over whether or not it was a justified shooting. And in almost all of the ones I've talked to, it's a justified shooting. So I have to look them and say, you are carrying false guilt, okay? You understand not all violence is bad, okay? There's righteous violence and there's unrighteous violence. Let me say it stronger. Nobody kills more people than Jesus. He's gonna come back, kill all his enemies and send them to hell forever. God is the most violent being in the universe. There's righteous violence and then there's unrighteous violence. There's unrighteous violence, what the Nazis use. And then there's righteous violence, which the allies use because they had to, because they just didn't want to have a conversation about laying down their arms, okay? In the same way, there's righteous and unrighteous violence. So a lot of these guys, I get to say, you used righteous violence. What you did was justified, okay? You were under competent authority. You killed a combatant for this reason. All of that was fine. But every time I've told them that, even though it's justified, it never makes them feel better. So then I say the next thing, which is this. Let's pretend for a second that it wasn't a justified shooting. You shot a non-combatant intentionally. You were not as slow as you should have been. You did something wrong and you shot someone and it's not justified. Here's what you need to know. You're still forgiven in Christ. You see, your hope is not in not being a big sinner. You're a big sinner. Your hope is that Christ saves big sinners. But Zach, can I be forgiven even if I committed murder? David is. David is. You are clean. David is so confident in God's mercy to save big sinners. He writes a song about his adultery that people sing in church. How crazy is that? Imagine if Tim got up here and he's like, we're gonna sing a new song. It goes like this. <clears throat> I had pride and walked in lust today and I flipped someone off in my car and that's what we were singing. That's kind of what's going on with David. He is so confident of God's mercy that he doesn't have to be the hero. He just says, I've sinned big and God is a big 
Savior. Your hope is not that you're not a big sinner. Your hope is that God saves big sinners. Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, okay? Next, let's talk about this uh, plant here, hyssop, you see here in verse seven. What the heck is hyssop? Okay, I know this is something we're all thinking about all the time in 2020 in America, what hyssop is, so let me explain it to you real quick. In, in, in ancient Israel, you couldn't go to Home Depot to buy a paintbrush, okay? Or Sherwin-Williams or whatever, buy a paintbrush. So what they would do is they would take this little plant and they'd bundle it together and they would use it as a paintbrush. Now, in the Old Testament, specifically what the priest would do is they would dip it in water or they would dip it in blood, depending on what they're doing, and they would sprinkle it on things to make them ritually clean, okay? So on the surface, David is simply saying, make me clean in your sight. Make me ritually clean. What the priests do with the water, do to me, okay? But you see, if you trace this idea of hyssop and blood and this kind of stuff throughout the Bible, you actually see a bigger theology here. So if you're just saying, what does David mean? That can be one thing. But if you read the Bible Christologically, you might see some other things. For example, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites, the Hebrews, are being led out of Egypt, there are these plagues. And the last plague is where God sends this angel to kill the firstborn unless you do what? Yes, you cover your door with blood. You put blood on both sides of your door and on the top. And what does it say that they use to put the lamb's blood on their door so that the wrath of God might pass over? They use hyssop. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is dying on the cross and they take a sponge and they lift it up to his mouth, what does the Gospel of John say that they use to do that? A reed of hyssop. So David is probably just simply saying, cleanse me. But as you read the Bible Christologically, as you read it theologically, you realize the way that God cleanses is through providing a means of atonement. Jesus pays on credit for David's sin. Jesus pays for David's sin, though he dies after the time of David. Look at verse eight. It says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I know we're having to move quickly. There's a bunch of verses here. Let me just say two things here. First of all, who is it that breaks the bones? God. God breaks the bones. If you are God's child and you are in sin, he will break your bones. He will be the one that brings the discipline. It's not that God's sovereign over everything except evil. God's sovereign over everything. That's what makes him God. So God will use these bad things to discipline you, not because he hates you, not because he doesn't love you, but because he loves you. You will sometimes get a divine spanking because daddy loves me all the time. And so you see here that God is the one that breaks the bones. But notice, God is also the one that brings restoration. You see, as a sinner, your biggest problem is God. But also, he's your biggest solution. He's your biggest problem in that God hates sin because he's holy, but he's the solution in the, one that he is, in the fact that he's the one that sent Christ to redeem you. So David is saying, though you have disciplined me, and I acknowledge that, please take the innermost part of me. That's the idea of the bones to the Jews, your bones are not outside of your body, at least they shouldn't be. That let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Let me rejoice in the innermost being. That's what he means in verse eight. Now look at verse 11, verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? That's what some people think when they read this. It freaks them out. Why is David saying, don't take away the Holy Spirit? Isn't it the case that when you get saved, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Why is David saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me? Well, let me just clarify. He's not talking about losing salvation. Not only are there many verses that talk about how you can't lose your salvation, but logically it doesn't make any sense. If God forgives you of all your sin when you get saved, and by the way, that's all the sin you would ever do, past, present, and future. All your sins are future when Christ dies for you on the cross. When God forgives you of all your sin, 
If you were to quote unquote lose your salvation, what would God judge you for? There's no double jeopardy with God. Your sins have already been atoned for. There's nothing that God could judge you for. Additionally, the Bible doesn't just say that. It says when you get saved, the Holy Spirit is a seal. He's a promise. God has broken his promise. God is a liar if you were really saved and lost your salvation. The Bible also says when you're saved that God adopts you. What does he do if you lose your salvation? He just puts you back in the spiritual orphanage, just kind of unadopts you. It makes no sense, not only biblically, but logically. If God gives you eternal life, you can't temporarily have eternal life. I don't know if you know what eternal means, but whatever it means, it doesn't mean temporarily, okay? He's not talking about this. Here's what David is saying, okay? Here's what David is saying. Though I've sinned against you, do not do to me what you did to King Saul. If you think back to the Old Testament, King Saul was this king and God's Holy Spirit had anointed him to be the ruler of Israel. But because Saul disobeyed God, he offered this sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to, God removed his kingdom, removed his kingship. You see this in 1 Samuel 16, 13 through 14. God gives it to David instead. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, that's what you'd use to announce a king, anoint them, the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So what David is saying is, please don't leave me. Notice that the spirit is paralleled there with God's presence in the text. Please don't, please don't punish me like you did Saul. Please don't abandon me, though I have been unfaithful. That's simply what David is saying. He's not trying to give us a full-blown theology of perseverance of the saints or something like that, okay? Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Listen to this. We as Christians are commanded to have joy. Did you know that's one of God's commands? Yes, we serve others and yes, we pray and yes, we're commanded to take communion and all these other things. The Bible commands us to have joy. That's why at Parkway, we're always joking around. Why are we always making fun of each other and making jokes? Because God is a God of joy, amen? God has commanded us to have joy. So the question then comes, okay, what about when I don't feel joy? What about when I don't feel loved by God? Two things on that. First of all, pray for it. That's what David does. Notice that David doesn't have joy. The whole reason he's having to say, restore to me the joy of my salvation is because he doesn't feel it. You don't just worship God when you're joyful. You can worship God when you're not joyful. So the first thing is to pray for it. The second thing to realize is this. What God has said about you in his word is true whether you feel it or not. What God has said about you in his word is true whether you feel it or not. I've often found that if you trust your feelings too much, God won't let you feel the stuff. If you think that God's angry at you and you pray for those feelings to go away and God lets those feelings go away, what has God just taught you? To trust your feelings. A lot of times, God won't give you the feelings you're wanting, whether it's love, joy, peace, whatever, because he wants you to learn that what his word says about you is true regardless of your feelings. So pray for joy. Pray for feel the feeling God's presence. Pray for feeling God's love. But if you don't feel it, it's not because it's not true. It might be because God is not wanting to play into your false narrative, which says, I should trust my feelings. Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving my hope is in the word of God, not else is worth believing. Keep that in mind when you, uh, when you consider verse 12. Next, we've seen grace, we've seen confession, we've seen forgiveness. What is the next step biblically of repentance? It's worship. Let's take a look at what he's gonna say here in verses 13 through 17. Then, notice after the forgiveness, then I will teach transgressors your ways. That's called discipleship. 
and sinners will return to you. That's called evangelism, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. That's probably a reference to killing Uriah, by the way. We talked about righteous and unrighteous violence. David uses righteous violence against Goliath, unrighteous violence against Uriah. That's why he mentions blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That's worship. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Once you're in relationship with God, God has forgiven you. The next step is it leads you to worship. It leads to worship, discipleship, and evangelism. How great is this God who has redeemed me? Other people need to know about him. That's what happens in your heart, okay? God doesn't forgive you and just tolerate you. That's how a lot of us view him. God forgives you and makes you his servant. God takes someone who's a rebel, forgives them, cleanses them, adopts them, makes them a child of God by adoption, and then uses them to reach other rebels. It's amazing. I'll give you a little illustration. So I have a buddy that just bought a Tesla, okay? I have a buddy that just bought a Tesla, and, uh, which is a pretty cool, fancy car. Now, I knew nothing about Teslas before my buddy bought one, okay? In fact, I probably would have made fun of them. I don't want some sort of RC car, some sort of battery-powered car. And so I have a buddy who bought a Tesla, so he's obviously not in ministry, and... Uh, and so he bought this car and he says, Zach, you got to check out my car. So, oh, okay, I'll check it out. I don't really care, but I'll check it out. So I walk up to the car and the handles just pop out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what kind of awesome witchcraft car is this? Okay. Then I get in the car and he says, and I say, how do I turn it on? He's like, you don't have to turn it on. It's already on. I'm like, but I don't hear anything. He's like, exactly. I'm like, where's the engine? He's like, well, there's technically not an engine. I'm like, what's under your hood then? He's like a second trunk. What? How does this car go? Okay. So I start driving this car and it doesn't shift gears. So when you speed up, it's like being on a rocket ship. It doesn't go boo and then shift gears like in most cars as you're going quickly. It just goes quickly, okay? And so then we get on the highway and he's like, we're gonna do the autopilot feature. And I'm like, I don't know if you know, don't use the word autopilot around me, I don't like planes. And so he's like, we're gonna use the autopilot feature. And so we get on the highway and this car just drives itself literally. He's like, just relax. And I'm like, I can't just relax, we're gonna die. He's like, no, no, the spirit of Elon Musk will guide us, right? <laughs> And so this car is shifting lanes automatically, slowing down, speeding up, doing everything it needs to do. You can, you, there's a feature where you can turn on a whoopee cushion sound when you sit down in a seat. It will play Christmas music outside of the car. It's incredible, okay? So as soon, I knew nothing about these. I didn't like them. And I immediately come back from that experience and I walk in the car and I'm like, hey, Katie, you know what a Tesla is? Let me tell you about this car. I had gone from enemy to evangelist like that. I had gone from opponent to worshiper like that. That's what happens in God's salvation. He doesn't just forgive you and tolerate you. He just doesn't give you your get out of hell free card. Rather, he redeems you. He makes you a worshiper. He makes you an evangelist. He makes you a disciple maker. Look at verse 14. Oh, I just mentioned that. I'm sorry. That's uh, the Uriah thing. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 throws a lot of people. Let me read it again. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, what does that mean? Is David saying literally that God doesn't want sacrifices anymore? Like in the Old Testament, remember, David's under the Old Testament. Christ hasn't come yet. David is under the Old Testament, and God has commanded sacrifice for sin. God has commanded that animals be slaughtered in your place. That's part of God's command. Is David saying, ah, uh, you didn't really want any of that, scrap all that, forget all that stuff? That is not what David is saying. Okay, we'll see why in a second. 
If you have uh, your pen there, you might want to, by that little sentence, write the word merely. God doesn't delight in merely having a sacrifice. What David is saying is, you can't just do the religious action and act like that's what God wants. You can't do, so if you think to the, the 9-11 terrorists, right, who drove the plane, flew the planes into the Twin Towers, before they did that, they went to Vegas, and they had prostitutes and got drunk and did all this stuff because they thought, because we're going to be a sacrifice, Allah will be pleased. God doesn't do that. The God of the Bible is not like Allah. The God of the Bible doesn't just delight in the action when your heart's not in it. That's what he's saying. God doesn't delight merely in sacrifice. He's not saying, cancel all the rest of your Old Testament for now. That's not his point. What he's saying is if he doesn't have that inward heart change that he's talked about and he tries to just offer a sacrifice, God is not pleased. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says this, the whole Bible is united in the idea that sacrificial ritual in and of itself does not affect restoration of relationship with God. Rather, the sacrifice of an animal must reflect a heartfelt acknowledgement that the sinner deserves the death experienced by the animal. That's what David is saying, okay? Look at verse 17, we're almost done. Verse 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen, the only wrong way to come before God is when you're trying to clean yourself up. The right way to come before God always is broken and contrite. But Zach, I've done some terrible things. I'm currently doing some terrible things. That's okay. Do not try to clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and you let him do the cleaning. The only wrong way to come before God is not broken. Broken and contrite means that you're humble and you're lowly and you realize that you need mercy. The only right way to come before God is broken and contrite. And no matter what you've done, he will not despise that heart. As a little aside, one of the reasons that we don't dress up a lot here at Parkway, there's nothing wrong, by the way, if you want to dress up, you, you can wear a suit, you can do whatever you want, that's not my point. One of the reasons we've decided to dress down a little bit is because our dress says something about our theology. You don't clean yourself up and then come before God, you come as you are. I was told the opposite as a kid growing up. You've got to put your best foot forward for God at church. The gospel is the opposite of that. God puts his best foot forward for you. You come as you are. You come broken. You come sinful. You come dirty, and you let Christ clean you. Verses 18 through 19. We've seen grace. We've seen confession. We've seen forgiveness. We've seen worship. Now there's another step, what I call final restoration. This idea that one day God will put the world back to rights. Let's look at it. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. By the way, what is Zion? Zion is kind of this metaphor for God's promises to Israel. Zion is this, it's called Mount Zion. It's not really a mountain. Right, if you're expecting like, uh, you know, the Matterhorn or Pike's Peak and you go to Jerusalem, you're gonna be really disappointed. It'll be like that scene from Dumb and Dumber where they're like, I really thought the Rockies would be a lot rockier than this. It's just a little hill, Mount Zion. It's not big physically, it's big spiritually. It is a symbol for all the promises that God makes to the Davidic king and to Israel. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, here's what you need to understand. These last two verses were not originally part of this psalm. When King David is ruling, the temple's doing just fine, or the, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, rather, is doing just fine. The walls of Jerusalem are doing just fine. This is a passage that was added after the Babylonian captivity. Now, that doesn't affect our view of Scripture. Remember, I said this at the beginning when we launched the Psalm series, we don't have a finalized form of the Psalms like we have today till almost the first century. So God not only inspires the biblical authors, he's also inspiring whatever editor is collecting these Psalms and putting them together, okay? 
But what's probably happened is, as the Jews return from Babylon, after being disciplined by God for their sins, they are relating their story of being judged and being forgiven to David's story of being judged and being forgiven. That's why they mentioned that currently there are no bulls being offered on the altar and the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. That's not what's going on in David's day. That's what's going on later. So three things we can learn from this. First and most importantly is that this psalm points to a day of final restoration, that one day God will metaphorically build up the walls. One day he will fix the world. One day you won't have to even worry about being a sinner. You won't even have a sin nature anymore. Things will be done. The second thing we realize, and please listen to this, this psalm is meant to be applied to you. Those returning from Babylon are applying the psalm to them because they realize that God's word isn't just for David, it's for us. This psalm somehow should affect you with whatever sins you've committed, whatever you're dealing with, okay? And the third thing is notice that God does delight in sacrifice. Notice the corrective here from misunderstandings of verse 16. God does delight in sacrifice when it's done with the right heart. Now, today, we do not offer any sacrifices. We don't offer any killing animal sacrifices, and we don't offer any sacrifices for sin. That's accomplished completely by Christ. But there is a sense in which we sacrifice today. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, okay? So here's what I want to do to end Okay? And then we're going to take communion. <clears throat> I want to lead us in a time of guided repentance. I want to lead us in a time of guided repentance. I want us to walk through these steps. So if you guys don't mind, go ahead and put the steps back up on the screen. Now, you're free to look up here, or if you want to, you can go ahead and close your eyes. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or do anything weird. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to walk through these steps. We're going to apply the word. We're not just going to be hearers of the word, but we're going to be doers of the word, and we're going to apply this in our own lives. So whether you want to close your eyes or whether you want to look up here, let's just take a time to walk through these steps. Step one, grace. You are already, if you're a Christian, you are already loved by God, already. You're already forgiven. You are perfect. You are spotless. You are clean. That's where your relationship with God starts. That's not where it ends. That's where it starts. God has accepted you. Hear God say these words. You are forgiven. You are accepted. I love you. You cannot lose my love. It is done. You are clean. You are pure. You are perfect. Just sit in that for a second. Second step. Confession. Confession. Would you take a second to confess whatever sins you need to confess? Maybe it's something you're currently struggling with. Maybe it's something that you've done in the past. Maybe it's something you're really ashamed of and you've never forgiven you, although God has forgiven you. Would you take a second to confess what your sin is to God? You don't have to say it out loud. You can just think it in your mind. God can read your mind. Would you confess your sin? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian and you need to confess your sin and give it over to Christ, all of it. Maybe today's the first time you've heard that God must save you and Christ must save you and you can't be a good person. Would you ask Jesus to save you? Would you give him all your sin? It's okay, by the way, if you can't remember what all your sins are. We commit so many of them. It's okay to pray like David does elsewhere. Forgive me of my hidden faults. Would you confess your sin now and give those to Christ? And I'll ask you to go one step further. Would you confess to God that you are depraved in your flesh, that you are a bad person apart from Christ, that the reason you sin is because you are a sinner? Would you relish in how awful you are for a second? 
The third step, forgiveness. Now I want you to relish in the fact that God doesn't see you as awful. God sees you as perfect in Christ. Again, like I said, there are no dirty Christians because there's no dirty Savior. You are forgiven. You are spotless. You are freely, fully, and forever forgiven, period. Christ didn't just die for your sins up till now. He died for all your sins. Do you believe that you're forgiven? Do you believe that God has washed you as white as snow? Next step, worship. Would you thank God for being the kind of God who forgives you? Would you thank him for showing you mercy? He is infinite and he has only given you good and yet we have rebelled against him. Even the difficult things he puts you through is for your good and yet we are rebels to death. Would you thank him for loving you? Thank him for being merciful to you. You're here, you're alive, you're breathing. That is all grace. And lastly, would you focus on final restoration, the idea that one day God will fix everything. So don't just think about right now. Think about the future. Think about the fact that Christ will come back. Think about the fact that there will one day be no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. You won't have to repent anymore. You won't, be, you won't have a sin nature. You'll be glorified. Things will be perfect. Things will be like Eden, only better. Will you think about that, that one day God will fix everything? Let's pray as we transition into communion. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and we confess that we are broken and we are evil and we can do no good apart from you. We confess that we oftentimes try to, that our first step when we usually sin is to try to clean ourselves. It's to excuse our sin. It's to think that you're mad at us. This is a hard psalm for us because it's not our natural sinful inclination. Would you help us? We, we need your mercy. We need your grace. I pray for everyone in here who doesn't feel like you are loving, that they might realize that you are despite what their feelings say. I pray for everyone in here who really is a Christian that still doesn't feel clean. I pray that they might focus on the cross, that your work is accomplished in Christ. It's not about us. It's just about your grace. We give you all the glory and praise now as we transition into communion. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.